the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 274 for Thursday, July 22nd, 2010. To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. Boy, howdy, it's been a long time since I've said that, John. It's uh I was what I was away last week on vacation, and uh and then we this week's been crazy and we couldn't make the schedule work any earlier, so we're here with our uh with our standby time of Thursday afternoon. Welcome to the show. I am Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire, and on the other end is Mr. John F. Braun, right? Last I checked, Fairfield, Connecticut. <laughs> We had a, we had a, you and I saw each other a few days ago. That was a nice show. Yeah. We went and saw the Rush show down, uh, Rush show, Rush concert down in, uh, Mohegan Sun in Connecticut there. All I got to say is, boy, am I glad, uh, I uh, took your advice and got some earplugs. Oh yeah. My goodness. And it was funny because, uh, uh oh, let's turn that down. And it was funny because I didn't think I'd need them because we weren't right at the stage. No. But the, and I got as you re- and you recommended, uh, and they they I think serve the purpose well. Uh, Eddie Modic makes some uh, minus twenty dB earplugs. Yep. Boy, did I, I after the first song, I'm like, if 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 I hear the entire show like this, I'm gonna go. And you actually had an app, Dave. That was fu- that was hilarious because I was wondering how many dB is this. That's right. And so, yes, there's an app for that. Yeah, I have the SPL meter app, and I've I've calibrated it next to a. Um, uh, a um, a real SPL meter, and it's pretty close. Uh, it um, it you know, it, it's it's pretty close. So yeah, the sound sound wasn't over a hundred dB, so we actually could have stood it for quite some time. There was a the, the sound in the room was a little weird in the in the arena, and and there was a a little bit of a high end kind of a high mid grading that I think would have annoyed us more than any sort of pain or permanent damage uh, would have been caused by, by exceptional decibel levels. But you never know. I always wear earplugs to concerts. Frankly, I find that the show sounds better with them because I wind up not hearing as much of the echoing. Uh, I just hear more of the, the straight sound from the stage when I'm wearing earplugs. So, right. So, hey, there and, and there was somebody lit up some funny smelling incense in the, uh, and yeah, I, I don't know what it was. I yeah, I, I was I, I was not familiar <laughs> with that. That's right. All right, moving on. We got a boatload. We, we got it. We got we, There's no way we're going to get through all this stuff. That's right. So, uh, first question was actually proposed to me by Johnny D, Mr. John Donahue, who is our newest member to our team at Backbeat Media, and we got him. You know, we set him up. We got him a MacBook Pro, and he's got an iPhone, and you know, get him all. And he's a Mac guy anyway. Uh, but he came to me. Uh, this week, after uh, after ha- having been uh, working out of his own home office last week, came in and he saw my my monitor. Now I have my MacBook Pro hooked up to uh, a, a 23 inch cinema display, which used to be like the biggest thing you could ever get, and now it looks small, right? But it's still pretty big. And he and he came over and he's like, "Now wait a minute, you have your menu bar and your dock on the big screen." He's like, "How do you do that?" He's like, "What what cable do I need to make that work?" And I said, and I said, oh, well, you need a, uh, you know, a, a, a DVI cable from your monitor. Uh, you know, I said, this monitor happens to have one with its kit, but, you know, maybe yours only doesn't. He's like, no, I have DVI. He says, I can drag windows back and forth. 
But I, you know, the, the dock is always on my, my MacBook pro screen. He says, and I want it on the big one. And I thought, gosh, you know, doing this has been that the UI for doing this has not changed since gosh. I mean, since the first Mac I ever did it with, and it's not intuitive in the slightest. So I walked him through the process and as after I did so thought, well, this would be a great thing to just share on the show. So the way that you do that, I assume you know how to do this, John. Yes. I've, uh, I usually don't run a multi, uh, multi-monitor system, but right. yes, I I've done this before, but, okay. uh, but yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning. Cause yeah, it's, it's certainly not obvious. No. So what you do is you go, once you've plugged the second monitor in, uh, you go into system preferences displays, and then you'll get a window on each monitor. Now, if you're in mirrored mode, uh, you're going to see the same thing on both monitors, but you can go to the arrangement tab and the arrangement tab. If you're in mirrored mode appears on both monitors. If you are not in mirrored mode, it appears on only one of them. So go to the arrangement tab. First of all, if you want to use multiple monitors in desktop extension mode, and what that means is you can actually drag a window from one monitor to the other. Uh, it's a pretty cool thing to to see, and it's a pretty cool thing to be able to do. So you turn off mirror displays, which is with a little checkbox down at the bottom, I think left. Then you'll see a layout in the arrangement tab of the display system preference. You'll see a layout of both monitors in in relation size wise related to each other. And they're also related position wise. So there's two things you can do here. One is you can actually drag these around. You can grab one monitor or the other and drag them around to tell the computer how they are laid out physically, because what you don't want is to take a window and drag it off the right side of one screen. When the other monitor is to your left, you want to be able to tell the computer how things are arranged. So that's the first thing that you can do on this tab. The second thing is you'll notice one of the screens, and in John's case, it would be his MacBook Pro screen, has a little white bar represented at the top of it in this arrangements window. It, you can grab, and this is not intuitive at all, or maybe it's overly intuitive, I don't know, but you, you grab the little white bar and drag it from that one screen to the other. So you're not dragging the, the screen and moving it, you're dragging the white bar and moving it from one screen to the other, and instantly, you don't even have to reboot, Instantly, your menu bar and dock will move from that from one screen to the other. And that's how you do that. The cool thing is, uh, as you if you unplug the monitor, even if the main monitor, i.e. the one with the menu bar is now unplugged, it automatically goes back to the uh, one built inside. And then when you plug in that same monitor again, it will bounce the menu bar back over to that screen. So the, the Mac remembers its configuration for each separate monitor. If I go to a trade show and I plug in a, uh, a projector, it doesn't think that it's my same external monitor as I have at home and I can rearrange things there. And then when I get back home, it's, you know, back in just like I left it. So nice. cool now, can you, can you just drag the menu bar no, right. you own. Yes. But with the menu bar comes the dock. You're, and you're again, you're not dragging it from the actual screens. You're dragging it from their representations in the arrangement. All right, that, that, that's what I meant. Yes. So you can't do that. You can't. No, you can't have the dock on one screen and the menu bar on the other. Not OK, but, but, but you can't dra directly drag it from the, the desktop. 
No, no, that's right. You're only you're all doing right. all of this inside of the virtual representation of the screens, okay. which is in the system preferences. That was one nice thing that, if I recall, XP would let you do. It might will let you do. Yeah. Now, now, can you another question? I, I know you can drag them to the left and the right of each other to indicate the order. And as you indicated, that's usually a good thing. Though I could also think that'd be a, a funny prank to play on someone that you want to aggravate. But can you drag them on top of one another? Or is it just to the left and to the right? I've never tried uh, it. Yeah, you can't layer them on top of each other. But when you mirror the displays, it will put them on top of each other. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. So. Okay. Good, yeah. Uh, good tip. I thought so. Uh, all right. Let's uh, let's go to Mr. X, but it's not that Mr. X. It's a different Mr. X with a different question. Hello. Um I'm having some trouble with an external sound card issue. It's a USB Creative Labs um, sound card. But the issue is is that when I plug in the sound card via USB and I try to control the volume, it has a little, um, you know, can't change the volume thing on this, on the keyboard, on the, on the display. So is there a, a shareware utility that will take... Um, let's see kind of let you control the volume even through an external device because it has like a volume knob on it it's just the issue is is that it gives me surround sound but I can't control the volume I have to do it from the speakers which as you know um, the iMac used to at least come with a um, a little remote that you can control the volume from which I use constantly Um, however that doesn't work with the sound card and I need to be able to control the volume from a from the computer so uh, yep this is where you cut me off alright cool now uh, first this is he didn't specify but I'm pretty sure this product Dave is the creative labs X mod okay he, he didn't specify the product but I, I searched the line I believe that's the only one that creative makes that is a, is a USB Right. To, uh, basically, one end is USB and the other is a headphone. I think headphone, I think it may have a, a line out. And a, so, two different ways of outputting. And I think the purpose in life for the, of this thing is to enhance your sound and give you surround and all that great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a cool thing. But it, what's important to note is that it's digital sound. Uh, and so, the Mac cannot, the Mac's built-in volume functions only impact analog sound, right? So one cannot, uh, there, there is no way of controlling, there is no way of telling the digital output, I want to send you less data, right? Now, presumably, a hardware vendor could write a piece of software that allowed the Mac to tell the hardware go ahead and lower your output volume. Right. But otherwise there's no, there's no real way for the Mac to be able to, to do that. But there's, I mean, we can hack at it, right? There's, there's always something, right, John? Yeah. I mean, the device itself offers it. If, uh, and I look right. at a picture of it. So basically this device is, is a D to a, so it's coming in as digital, as you pointed out through the USB port. And then it has a big old knob on it to adjust the volume. And I even reviewed the documentation and the answer to how do I adjust the volume is it turn the knob. That's right. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, that's uh, right. The, there was no other option. You, you're, you're correct. I believe there's a way to configure it. I, I also looked. I believe you can use the MIDI setup app, and that can configure some aspects of this, but but not the volume. But but you had kind of a, a potentially clever way to maybe hack this. Yeah. So the 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 way the thing I thought of was using Audio Hijack Pro, right? And in that, you can set the digital uh, input and output gain of whatever it is you're hijacking. And you can use it to hijack the, the entire system audio. And then you could output that system audio to whatever device you want. In this case, it could be his Creative Labs X Mod. And inside there, you can set the volume up and down. So, but But it's important to note that you're not actually changing the analog volume of this uh though the result of what you're doing changes it what you're doing is you're changing the sound file itself and essentially throwing away data that then causes the file to get less loud if that makes sense it in the end you probably won't notice it but if you're if you're looking to to get pristine quality out you want to let the system stream the the raw digital to this device and then use the analog controls on the device. But as a hack, if you want to be able to bring your volume down and kind of mess with it, audio hijack pro will do it for you. And you probably won't notice much, if any difference in the ears. That's That's my thought, John. All right. On to Kelly. Oh yeah. Oh, this, uh, this gets detailed because there's a lot of different, uh, go ahead. There's a lot of different parts of the OS that, the, 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 this, this involves. So, Yeah, I I agree. I agree. You know what? Before we do, Kelly, I want to tell you and everyone else about our first sponsor here, which is Bare Bones. And today we'll talk about BB Edit. Uh, BB Edit 9.5 is out now. And John, there's a couple of things that uh, that are that are kind of cool in it that I want to talk about. Now, BB Edit is a world class text editor. It's a text editor beyond just a simple text editor with this. It's really built to edit code files. Now, the code could be uh, C++. The code could be JavaScript. The code can be HTML. Or you can just use it to edit regular text files. Uh, There are a lot of functions in here that one could find very handy. Uh, In 9.5, they've done some cool things. They've they've made the app even more Mac-like. And there's now a live search bar uh, inside BBEdit that similar to Safari kind of highlights uh, the, uh, the, the string that you're looking for. And John, you'll appreciate this. The Emacs key binding of control S and control R will open the live search bar. So, uh, so if you're, <sighs> I know I thought you'd appreciate that, right? Uh, so that, that's one new thing in this. The, uh, the one thing I really like in version nine, which has been a wreck, maybe it was in 9.1 is that you can have a bunch of different files open you know, and you can you can in BB edit, you can have one window with many files similar to tabs in Safari. So you can have, you know, three or four windows open with eight or nine documents in each one. And then you got to reboot your Mac. And there were many times when I did not reboot my Mac because I didn't want to have to quit BB edit. So they added a sleep command to BB edit. And really what it does is it quits the app. But before it does, it saves your entire workspace and then the next time you launch it, it's as though you just woke up BB Edit. Everything reappears just as it was before. And you can even, in the preferences, remap the command Q uh, keystroke 
to be sleep instead of quit so that when you're in there, you hit command Q, boom, it sleeps it. You're never at risk of actually quitting and closing out all the windows that you spent so much time to, uh, to open up. So this is BB edit 9.5 from bare bones. Of course, uh, at barebones.com, you can go and download a free trial. And then once you're hooked, it's 125 bucks for the individual version. Uh, if you have a previous version, pre 9.0 version of, of BB edit, you can get that. You can upgrade for 30 bucks. And if you qualify for an educational license, either by being a student or an employee, teacher, etc., of an educational institution, 49 bucks is your price for BB edit all available at barebones.com. And with that, John, it's time to move on to Kelly. Kelly writes, I'm writing about a problem I've had in any WebKit browser that I have used Safari, Chrome, and yes, even Apple mail. The problem is that for some reason, some fonts are rendering as an a inside a box. I don't know what is causing it and was wondering if you guys have run across this problem and if you know how to fix it. Kelly attached a screen grab to the problem and sure enough showed us this. And that triggered something in you, John, because you had seen something like this before. So why don't, we'll bounce this back and forth. But why don't you take it? Yes. So I had seen this in the past with some Chrome betas where what would happen on certain pages is you would see an A in a box. No matter what was being displayed, it would constantly display A's in a box. Now, the solution to that problem, which was not the solution to this problem, but something I suggested. So the first thing that I did was in Safari, I highlighted. So fortunately, Kelly sent a link to the web page. So that was that was great. Thank you. And that actually helped me because I went to the same web page. I didn't see the same thing, though. I'm like, hmm, that's odd. First thing I wanted to do is determine. Now, now I figured it was probably a font issue because it was only happening on one part of the page. The rest of the, play, uh, the page displayed properly. Now, first thing is, how do I know what font is being displayed? Gosh, well, you could view the source for the page, but that's not very elegant, and you're going to have to dig through all sorts of nasty HTML. Here's another way, a nicer way to do it, and this worked for me. So I highlighted the font that was displaying in a strange way, and then I went to, and I believe it's in the window menu. Is it in the window menu? Uh, in in font book you mean no 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 in safari oh, sorry so in the safari browser where the heck is it inspector what i did was activate the inspector okay and you do that i've only the only way i've found to do it and there might be another way but the way i've done it is i write or control click uh in safari you, ho you hover over wherever it is that you've that you want to uh inspect and then you write or control click over it and choose inspect element. And okay, I'm sorry. There, there's another way to do it as well. Okay. Okay. What's the so other that, way? that so that's probably the most direct way. Yep. The other way is that if you enable the develop menu, yes, there will be a choice called show web inspector. Mm. So basically, all right. So two ways to get to it. But yeah, thanks for pointing out that shortcut. Sure. So, well, and the shortcut's really handy because it will bring you to it, it'll it'll highlight the line or lines of code that are related to whatever you hovered over. So it's a right. much easier way of, of targeting right in. So in, in Kelly's case, you know, highlight right on the broken font and go. And now, you know, you're starting to, to dig a little bit deeper. Yep. And so it brought me to the uh, description of the font. And as it turns out, this font is Arial Black. Fair. Now, enough. if you want to. So, you know, it's a, a you know, 
a choice for the web page, not a good or bad one. It actually looked pretty good, or at least I could see it. Now, how do you diagnose the font problem here? Because I was suspecting it was a font problem. So what I did is fired up. There's a utility that uh, some of you may not know about, but now you do call FontBook. And this is Apple's font inspection and maybe repair utility. Now, the problem that I had seen, this problem in the past, when it happened with Chrome, here was the problem. And I don't know why this happens, but it does happen. The problem with Chrome was due to there being multiple instances of a font. Now, I don't know why this happens or if it should happen, but there is a way in FontBook to, um, in the edit menu. So what you want to do is you want to highlight whatever font or fonts you would like to include in this operation. And then if you go to the edit menu, there are going to be two choices. One is called select duplicated fonts. All yep. right. And then there's another one called disable duplicates. Now, people have told me that on Chrome, this fixed the problem. And, and it's probably something you may want to do anyways, because I don't see any reason why you would ha- want to have multiple copies of the same font. It sounds it sounds like a, a good uh, a good idea. I mean, I think sometimes there may be duplicates because sometimes I've seen this one is true type and one is postscript or they may be different fonts. And maybe if you're a real font jockey, it may it, you may have a reason to do this. But I think for the most part, you want to disable those duplicate fonts. As it turns out, we, we emailed back and forth. Well, that didn't do it. It's like, darn right. right. All right. Let's try something else. Then, and then this kind of threw me, but we eventually got to the, the, the problem here. Then I also suggested, well, try this other thing. So there's another option in FontBook. If you go to File and you say Validate Font, it will do, uh, as I found out, a very cursory <laughs> inspection of the font. Or it'll make sure that the font is structured properly. Okay. And what it'll show you is that next to each font that you selected, if there's a, no problems with it, it'll show a little, I think, a green check mark. And if there's a problem, you can click on it, and it'll go into some details. For example, one problem could be, well, there's multiple copies of me, or this feature, or that feature is disabled. As it turns out, uh, when Kelly selected this font, Arial Black, it said the font was fine. Here was the other thing, though. Yeah. Then I suggested, and, and this, I think, is was the problem. Then I said, well, if you click on Arial Black in FontBook, what do you see? And what did Kelly see? The same Kelly broken saw A's. all the broken A's. So now this threw me, but so I guess the structure of the font is correct, but the font itself is damaged is the only conclusion I can come to. Yeah. Well, let's, I think that's right. Let's pick it apart a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Her problem is happening in any app that uses WebKit. Now she talked about Safari, Chrome and mail as great examples of apps that use WebKit to render their text. My guess is that font book is also an app that renders its text with WebKit. Why not, right? Apple's built this great rendering engine. Why reinvent the wheel for one of their own apps? They don't expect their their third-party developers to reinvent the wheel. They tell them, use WebKit, dummy. Uh, so my guess is somebody at Apple used WebKit for uh, FontBook as well they should have. So yeah, so something about this font, maybe it just doesn't contain what WebKit needs for it to render this uh you know th- this font maybe it's maybe it's something else I don't, I don't know what that would be webkit's pretty robust about rendering all the different types of fonts that are out there but maybe yeah what whatever it is webkit doesn't like it right 
Now, what do you do with this font? Now, the thing is, you got to figure where this font came from. And, and in this case, now, most of you may know Arial is a uh, Microsoft font. Okay. So the thing is, you're not going to uh, reinstalling or, or the OS doesn't even give you a choice from what I saw. Snow Leopard does not give you a choice to reinstall fonts. I couldn't even find them on the installer. But I did find it. Now, first, you want to find where the font is. And the way to do that is within FontBook, you can either go to Preview and say Show Font Info, or you can go to the File menu and say Reveal and Finder, and it'll show you. Because fonts are scattered about in OS X. They're not all in one place. They're in a few different places. Right. And this one happens to be in a folder uh, called inside another font folder called Microsoft. Now, I did find this font. What did I find it in? I found it actually in Microsoft Office. So... I'm going to guess that you need either Office or maybe Entourage or another piece of Microsoft software, and you could either dig into the installer package and drag this uh, file out. I mean, it's called, you know, Arial Black. I think it was .ttf. And uh, that's that's what I would do. There you go. Yeah, I think that's that's it. Replace the font is the simple answer to uh, to a long troubleshooting trail. Time yes. to move on to Trevor. Yeah, this is, this is the one. I don't know. Yet another troubleshooting trail. Trevor writes, I have a seemingly simple problem that is very frustrating. I have a white polycarbonate plastic MacBook that I purchased in late 2008. It shipped with two 512 meg RAM sticks, and I recently ordered and installed two two gigabyte RAM sticks. This is inside Apple's boundaries for how much RAM this machine can handle, but it simply will not boot. The optical drive spins up and the LED on the front lights solid. I immediately assumed I had bad new RAM and frantically started troubleshooting. I threw the old RAM back in and it booted right up. I then put one of the new RAM sticks in and one of the old ones in and it boots fine. And system profiler and the fact that my computer runs faster now show that the new RAM is fine. This is the case with all combinations of all four RAM chips in all the possible slot configurations. But still, when I put both two gig chips in, no booting. What could be the problem and how do I fix it? So, uh, John, you and I both had some different ideas on this. My initial thought on this from reading Trevor's email was the one thing I haven't heard about is you testing booting from the machine with only one of the two gigabyte chips in and nothing else. So uh, leave one slot empty. Try booting with with just the two gig stick in there. And see what happens. My guess is that the, the machine will not boot with the, the single two gig chip. And uh, and I think if you did a RAM test on it, even in the one five twelve and one two gig mode, that you would find that the Mac is not going to be happy with uh, with that two gig chip. And uh, maybe maybe our thoughts aren't all that different on this, John. Maybe maybe I think you're, you're thinking along the same lines, but go ahead. I may be. Right. So one thing, uh, one thing I, I want to ask in general, um, the the machine was identified, but it, I couldn't find, for example, a, a two thousand eight MacBook. I uh, but I, I found information that that was uh, that where where I got the ballpark, and yeah, that machine certainly can support four gigabytes. Right. What I'm going to suggest here is is one of two things. So one. You want to get, and I think he did this, but I'd like to get this information here. So System Profiler, if you start up System Profiler, which you can either find it or you go to About This Mac and you say More Info. So System Profiler, under the hardware category, has a memory category, and it's going to show you a bunch of information about the RAM chip. 
Uh, it's going to show you the memory slot. It's going to show you the size. Now, the two items that I would like to know if they're the same, there's going to be a type column and there's going to be a speed column. I'm wondering if this memory, if the memory is different types or different speeds and that yep. he's stumbling across a wacky combination. The other thing that I'm thinking here, Dave, is that perhaps this may not be memory that is meant for a Mac. And that there, you can get, and, and if this is a MacBook, I think it's usually an SO DIM, right? Or at least yeah. that's the form factor. Of the yeah, chip. They, I found a, a page on Low and Mac that describes the machine, and it, it is, uh, it did come with one gig. It is expandable to six gigs using PC2 5300 DDR2 RAM. Right. Now, there is memory that has features that the Mac will not like. Like, for example, there's one feature, I believe it's called the ECC error correction code. Yeah. Uh, uh, from what I understand, most Macs uh, do not like that feature, even though it sounds like a wonderful thing. I think it'll it'll get the, the machine upset. I don't. Well, you may be right. I, I, I was under the understanding. Right. It, it's possible. Uh, <laughs> it, I was under the understanding that if your machine uh, or the memory controller, i.e. the computer, didn't support ECC, that it would simply ignore it. It, it wouldn't even know it was there. But I, I, I might. I might be wrong about that. Yeah, I can dig around for that. So I'm going to I'm going to guess that it's the memory was either from a place that does not specialize in Mac memory. And you and I have recommended them before and I'll recommend them again. But uh, Mac sales or OWC, these guys know what the heck they're doing as far as memory. Yeah. Another place to look is. is, Yep, there it is. Crucial. Okay. Took the words right out of my mouth. Okay, those two I've dealt with and these people understand uh, how to give you memory that will definitely work on your Mac. So, yep. I, I, if he if he did buy it from them, then you know the the chips may be bad. It it, it happens. Right, right. All right, uh, Rick's question. I like questions like this that make us think a little bit. John, uh, Trevor's made us think. Kelly's made us think. This is all good. Uh, Rick writes, my question is, when we have, a, we have a few Mac Pros and an iMac in the house, and I would like to connect them to my Plasma TV, I understand about the cables that would, that would be required, but I want to do it wirelessly. Do you know of a way that could be accomplished? I wanted to be able to just beam, for lack of a better term, what I see on the Mac monitor to my TV so we can share photos, web pages, movies the kids make, etc. Any ideas? John, uh, you, you want you want I'd, to take I'd, this one? Yeah, go ahead. I'd I'd get a honking uh, a, a really long cable. Yeah, that is one way to do it. Uh, no, <laughs> well, wait, well, we did some research, right? VGA can go maybe a hundred feet. HDMI can go maybe fifty feet. Uh, but that doesn't that doesn't fit uh, his uh, his 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 requirement here of doing it wirelessly. So right, I, right. Uh, and you you found something, so I'll I'll let you talk about some of the things that you found. I I think I found the uh, the the high end uh, expensive option, but I think it'll work. But you found I think some more reasonably priced things. I, I did. I well, there was one product that everybody was excited about last year. Belkin had a product called the Flywire, but they found out it was going to have to cost about thirteen hundred bucks, so they they ditched it. But it would have done all of this and more. Um, 
in theory anyway. Then then there was one I found at SewellDirect.com, S-E-W-E-L-L Direct.com, which is like the total bare bones VGA over wireless. It says it does 1280 by 1024. Uh, so that probably is enough for your television. Remember, you don't have to match the capabilities of your Max monitor because once you connect this up, your Mac's going to see the TV as a second monitor of its own resolution. So you could tell your slideshows to perform on that screen and it's going to perform them at presumably the native resolution of the TV. Uh, and then I found something called internet view from ad logics that uh, that's about 160 bucks. This, the one from Sewell is only about 80. Then there's this one called internet view from ad logics that uh, it looks like it'll, it'll do something similar to this. Uh, it's VGA or DVI. So you, you would have to, and it only does uh, 1024 by 768. So, that may or may not be enough if what you're doing is showing the movies that you home movies and pictures and stuff. That's going to be totally fine. If you're trying to do movies, it may be fine. It all depends on how quickly the data can get from your computer to this uh, to this other thing. So, John, and then you found you found one uh, one device uh, or a couple, actually. OK, but, uh, but they're not cheap. So I, I believe I saw this at a uh, at a Macworld, but Geffen makes a couple of different devices that are HDMI extenders. So you will need a way to get HDMI first, but then these will extend HDMI up to 100 feet. And as far as I can tell, they do it at the full frame rate of, uh, and I'm going to assume that the Plasma TV has HDMI as well. I, I think that's a safe assumption, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think that is. Yeah. yeah, and they have two different models. One here, oh, they got a couple of them. But yeah, they're uh, the, one of them is uh, about a grand. And that'll get you going 30 feet. And then they have another one here. Oddly enough, it's less expensive and it'll go 100 feet. So hmm. there's certainly a way to uh, extend uh, HDMI. And I, I think I think they also do DVI, but, uh, but it's not cheap. So uh, it's it's worth noting that AdLogic's, uh, AdLogic's uh, interview, Internet View product says on their Web page, it's compatible with the Mac. And then there's a little kind of, you know, you got to dig deeper. And it says... By installing boot camp with Windows XP. So uh, with that, I would look at either the Geffen thing on the high end or this whatever it is from Sewell Direct uh, on the on the low end. And I, I think I think you might be able to get away with it. The other option, if you're considering the Geffen option at the high end of the price realm, I would strongly urge you to look at getting a Mac mini. They have HDMI ports on them now. They have digital sound out on them now, and they have a hard drive in them. In fact, it's an entire computer. You could also get an Apple TV, slightly less flexibility in your functionality, but might do what you want. The difference here is that by using an Apple TV or a Mac mini, you don't have to rely on the speed of your network for streaming the content directly to your TV. You stream it to the device and then let the device, uh, play it on the TV. So you've got a buffer that might really help you there. It might not, but that that's certainly something to consider here before you start going nuts with these wireless video solutions. That's my, that's my two cents. That's uh that's good. And actually I did find something on crucial site and it would seem that the MacBooks do not support ECC. I don't know if that means the machine's going to explode or, Right. They definitely say do not mix, but that doesn't sound like the problem either. So, uh, mm -mm. yeah, it's an interesting conundrum here, but all right, moving on to Paul. 
Paul writes, I'm pulling it up here. Here we are. Paul writes, I have two Macs and a new HTC incredible phone running Android OS. I'm trying to do the following steps. Number one, sync all contacts on Entourage from my Mac between the two Macs. I typically have my laptop with me and put in all new contacts and appointments there and want the other iMac at home to sync this data. I believe I can do this with .Mac, which I have. I've already set up sync services and Entourage on both Macs to my .Mac account. What I don't know is how, when this synchronization happens and if .Mac is updating my Entourage files or not. Number two, this new phone uh, I got from Verizon and it runs Android, as I said. I want to keep my calendars and contacts all in sync across the two platforms between Mac and Android. So far, my research has helped me to check out missing sync from MarkSpace, but I'm not sure that will keep everything updated on the fly. The main reason for wanting to keep Entourage is that I like having my email and calendar in one application. There are also lots of categories and projects associated in Entourage that I want to keep as well. I have over six years of stuff and I really don't want to recreate it. Can I pull this off? So I started down this path with no real preconceived notion about the solution, John, because I don't use Entourage and I don't have an Android phone. And yeah, I, I used don't Entourage know. once. But yeah. <laughs> you didn't like it, huh? Oh, no, no. Oh, no. It was very nice. Oh, OK. No, Entourage, uh, if, if you're on an exchange ser- server, uh, Entourage, and, and as is pointed out, it'll also talk to uh, .Mac, which is really nice. So, uh, no, I had no problem with it, though. As you probably know, they are going to be retiring that product Correct. and making and they will be coming out with uh, Outlook. So it's going to be because uh, I still think there's a difference between the, the Mac and the PC version. The, the PC has been running Outlook. So so I think they're the next release is going to have Outlook for Mac and it's going to be equivalent in functionality to what's on the PC side. Got it. OK, so I, I started with three assumptions and figured I could put them all together. Number one is one of the things you mentioned, John, that Entourage will happily inter- integrate with an exchange server. Uh, number two, and this is an assumption I'll make, but I, I'm pretty confident in this, is that Android being a Google OS will happily integrate with Google's calendar, email contacts, etc. And And I know this from a couple of Android users that I know that, in fact, it does. Now, number three that I also know because I do it from my iPhone and my iPad is that Google's Gmail uh, calendar and contacts are all accessible over the air as though they are an exchange server. So Google essentially will allow its stuff to masquerade as an exchange server to these clients. And so I started thinking, well, wait a minute. Entourage talks to Exchange, Android talks to Google, and Google can act like Exchange, so we might have a perfect little marriage here. But it doesn't work. For some reason, Entourage, and maybe this is something Google has done, though I can't imagine why, uh, although maybe they don't want to overload their servers, uh, but it seems like Google will only act as an Exchange server to mobile devices. Uh, I couldn't get it to act as an exchange server to any client on my Mac, including Entourage. So that went out the window. I thought I had this brilliant, elegant solution right out the window. It went. So the idea is we want to sync Entourage to your Mac's address book and iCal, uh, which you can do by turning on sync services in Entourage, which you've already done. So that's step one. And then allow iCal and address book to use their Google calendar sync features to sync that stuff out to the, 
Google's cloud. And then your Android device also will sync with your account at Google's cloud. And in theory, magically, all that stuff just stays in sync. Um, and, I, and I think that'll work. I know the address book thing works fairly well. It'll only serve, it'll only sync three phone numbers, but I think you're going to find that limitation. I would guess you're going to find that limitation uh, across all the Google services. So that may not be an issue for you. Uh, and then the calendar thing, you, you have some calendars, John, that you sync from iCal to the Google cloud. And although now that I think about it, you may actually have to use BusyCal because your Mac is going to see these calendars your Mac's going to need to see these calendars as local calendars on your Mac that then also sync with Google. So you're going to need to either use busy sync, uh, which does all this syncing in the background or busy Cal, which does it when you open the calendar. So busy sync, because you're already using entourage might be the magic answer. So that's, those are my thoughts anyway. I'm with you. It's, it's kind of a silly walk, but um... it's a silly walk. Yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have to be this hard. Yeah, the problem is you just have competing synchronization standards here. Right. But it sounds like the Mac can, can bring it all together. When I was using uh, Entourage, I would, yeah, kind of have to do a silly walk and that data was in multiple places. But it all eventually propagated throughout the entire chain there. So. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, you know, I want to talk about our second sponsor, John, which is Circus Ponies. And Circus Ponies' flagship product is Notebook, and they're up to version 3.0. The idea behind Notebook is it is an electronic organizer in the form of electronic notebooks. Once you're inside Notebook, you can create multiple notebooks, essentially multiple files on your Mac for different subjects, different categories in your life. If you're a, the, the easy example is if you're a student and you're taking multiple classes, uh, be it classes in college or high school, or even if you have to go to a seminar for your job, you might want to be able to take some notes. And so you can take notes right there in notebook. And then you could also, let's say they gave you a PDF as maybe a chart or a graph that you were going to refer to. And you wanted to take notes in regards to that, but you can pull that PDF right in any place you want there in your notebook. And you can either mark up the PDF itself inside notebook or you could, of course, just write notes before or after it and really sort of arrange this in a very straightforward, intuitive and and media rich way. You can then search throughout the notebook if you know, gosh, I know I, I put something in there last Tuesday. Uh, let me find all the stuff that I, all the edits that I did last Tuesday and bam, you can search and do that. If you know some keywords, you can search by those. Their, their search engine is built to allow you to search by what you know, as opposed to what you're trying to find. So this is Notebook from Circus Ponies uh, version 3.0. It is available for a free download. I encourage you to go and download it and check it out. Once you're convinced it works for you, $49.95 is the price. You can buy it right there on the website. Uh, if you qualify for an academic license, just like we talked about before, that is $29.95. So check it out at circusponies.com. John, I think it's time to talk about mail. What do you think about that? <sighs> yes, we got, we got a lot absolutely. of mail questions. I love mail. You know, I'm a, I'm a convert, even though somebody pointed out to me that Eudora, there is, uh, they are moving forward with, I guess, a, a re, you know, risen from the ashes version. Somebody wrote me this, but or tweeted me, but I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a mail type of guy now. Once I, I solve that signature problem, yeah. mail all the way. 
And uh, and th- and one of the features I like is one of the problems that uh, that our friend Lee I think is is having an issue with. All right, well, let's go to it. Lee? Hey, John and Dave and Pilot Pete, if you're there. It's Leandro here, and I have an issue with Apple Mail. Now, for some reason, I think the last two weeks, all the rules that I have applied, although they are active and I have not changed them whatsoever, um, it would seem that Apple Mail is just completely ignoring any rule that I've set. So, uh, for example, I get email from Amazon, and I put that in a um, Amazon-specific folder. And uh, whenever that comes into my inbox, I actually have it automatically moved to that Amazon folder. I have several more set up just like that, and previously it worked fine. Now, for the last two weeks, I've noticed that absolutely none of the rules that I've applied work. I've uh, deleted some, I've uh, created new ones, I've done permissions repair. I did not delete the dot plist file or whatever that thing's called because uh, I know that messes up my settings as well and uh, I, I've, I've read on forums that if you do that you know all the rules stuff get deleted again and I've got quite a few in there and I would like to avoid that if I can so uh, if you have a way for me to kind of force mail to use my rules again that would be lovely thank you in advance and uh, take care oh, oh and uh, just in case it's never been said yeah don't get <laughs> caught <laughs> of course uh, okay, so really what you need to do, Lee, is uh, if you grasp your computer with your left hand, get hold it pretty tightly and just give it a strong whack on the right side. That usually will jog the mail rules back into working. Have you found that, John? Yeah, or... Uh yeah, or sh- shake it. or yeah, Usually, uh, yeah, a good whack, because sometimes the, the bits, bits uh, get stuck. No. Uh, no really hot, soapy water is the answer. No, no, no. Um, so... The the uh, the thing I would suggest here is to take one of the rules and your Amazon rule is a perfect uh, test case. Move it to go into rules and drag it to the top of the rules list. Rules in mail are processed in order. So what's possible is that you have some rule up, you know, at or near the top of the list that says stop stop processing rules as part of its flow. If that's the case, it's going to stop anything that matches that. Uh, so go to uh, go to your, you know, move that up to the top of the list, then close the rules and, and rules are stored in your preferences. So it's mail preferences and then hit the rules button. It'll show you them right there. Close out of that back into mail, find an Amazon message, highlight it and go to the message menu and choose apply rules and see what happens. This is going to tell you if the Amazon rule is at the top of the list and you've got an Amazon message that, as far as you can tell, matches this rule perfectly, then off you go. If that doesn't work, what I recommend doing is creating a rule from the uh, from one of these messages. Right. You know, highlight a uh, highlight a message. And now that I say to do this, I can't find how to do it, John. Do you remember how to create rules? What, creating a rule? Yeah. It's the only way you can. Am I, am I, is my Eudora no, it's preferences? You got, yeah. you have to do it in preferences. You can't do it from a mail message. Correct. Uh, I've never done it that way. Yeah. I don't no, know. I've done it in preferences. Um, oh, oh, so here's what rules? you do. Hi, yeah. Highlight a message, then go into preferences, choose rules. And when you click add rule, it's going to take one of the conditions of the message that you have highlighted and start building the rule based on that. So, for example, I have a message that was sent to me 
uh, and Jeff Gamut from John Martellaro. And I had that highlighted and I went in here and I clicked add rule and it says rule 18. If any of the following conditions are met. And for me, it says if any recipient contains Jeff's email address here, uh, then perform the following action. So what, what I'm getting at here is you want to create a rule that, you know, mail is going to match because it's creating it from its own criteria, right? It has populated the criteria. Don't change the criteria uh, for the perform the following actions, change it from, you know, move message to a certain folder or market yellow or whatever you're going to do to it. And again, put that rule at the very top of your list and see if that works, if that doesn't work, then yeah, there's something funky going on. And I don't have an answer for that, John. Uh, the only thing I would suggest. So, you know, I was looking through the mail P list file. I can't find a section in there that actually has to do with roles. It, it may be named strangely, hmm. but the, the only thing that I would suggest, so you make a very good observation that, that it, it, it's not intuitive that the rules are handled. Uh, the one on the top first. Like when I was setting up, uh, I still use spam sieve. And one thing that they do, they, they offer a mail plugin, but they say, absolutely put this at the top of your list. Otherwise, we're not going to catch all the spam. Right, right. Now, the only thing I would suggest is that now I notice sometimes, especially when you have places email you and they use these automated systems. Uh, I would actually look at the rule again. And one of the criteria and I think, and, and he's doing what I, I do, for, and this is why I love the rules, is I'll typically be looking at the from address. And if it's a certain from, I'll assume it's from, you know, it's a certain category, for example. Well, a whole bunch of them, you know, sure. banking or whatever. What I will do is use the rule and say from. Now, the thing is, you can do a number of criteria. I always do contains, and I think that's what actually it defaults to. Now, you may want to double check and make sure that your rule is not being too specific. Now, I know he said, well, it sounded like he started modifying things, but but I would suggest that you re-examine the rule and make sure, again, that it's not being too picky and that it's only looking for, you know, like, you know, from Amazon one, two, three dot whatever, whatever right. the, 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 the from account could be, because I have noticed that that often it will not be the same. It, it, it could be different. So reexamine those rules. I, again, I was trying to find, I can't see it in the plist file, Dave. I was going to suggest that you get something like a plist editor and maybe whack just the rules. Yep. You know, first document them, of course, but whack well, just the rules to, without, to without fair, whacking everything. The rules are stored in their own plist, uh, at least in Snow Leopard. And I believe Leopard was this way too. The rules are stored in home library mail message rules dot P list. So if you really truly are having a problem with your rules, open that up, see if it looks corrupted. But even if it doesn't quit mail, actually quit mail before you open it up, quit, make sure mail is quit and then just delete message rules, P list and message rules, P list backup or move them out of the way. Then start mail up again. You're going to have no rules in there. But now you can start creating them and experimenting again to see if, in fact, removing just the rules causes a problem. Oh, look at that. I just learned something new. That's what that's what this podcast is all about. And, Thanks, uh, dude. Yeah, yeah, I thought it'd be in the main main uh, P list file. Well, but it's you, obviously when, not. And I like that it has a backup file. That That's pretty yeah. uh, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Oh, I guess he could restore the backup. 
Maybe yeah, but here. the backup's probably too new by now because I think it's it's creating a backup anytime you edit the rules, which of course he's done in his troubleshooting. So you you could go back if you had a time machine. Ah, good one, good one. So okay, all right. That's all we got to say about that. That's all we got to say. We'll stick on the uh, on the mail topic a little bit here, and we'll go on to this one about iPhones, iPads, iOS in general. Hi guys. I like listening to your podcast, and I just have a, a quick question about my iPad. In the mail app, when I create a new message and I click on the to field, uh, I see, or actually when I uh, start typing in an email address, there's suggestions from the previous emails that I've received from people, but not in my contact lists. So... Is there a way that I can clear that out? Because I know in the um, in the mail app on the Mac OS X, there is a, like a previous um, kind of list that you can delete. But I'm not sure about the way to do it on the iPad or probably in iOS. Uh, thanks, guys. My- you bet. Sadly, our caller is right. iOS does not appear to have a function that will allow us to clear this previous recipient previous recipients list. So what he's referring to, though, in mail on the Mac is that you can go to the window menu and choose previous recipients and it'll show you all these people, some of whom are in your contacts and some of whom are not. Uh, Anyone that you've ever sent an email to. So if you reply to somebody and they're not in your address book, it puts them here. If you type someone's email address and it's not in your address book, it puts it here. And it does this to make your life easier. So you don't have to type the same thing twice. But if, as our caller pointed out, you put the wrong thing in or it becomes an invalid address, there's no way to remove it from the iPad. But here you can. You can go to this list and highlight either one or multiples and click remove from list. And that's the end of it. Hmm. The I think only- it, oh, go ahead. Well, I think it prioritizes that the, the ones that, are, that, that you use the most will eventually, I think, bubble to the top. It seems that way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, I, I found the same thing. There's uh, I was thinking if, if there's a way for you to like surf the file system of the device, it may be stored somewhere and you could whack it. Maybe. That, but but that's uh, I'll, I'll have to try that. I, I, I was tempted to figure out maybe a not necessarily endorsed sure <laughs> apple endorsed way of doing this sure well the uh the the one way of doing it that is not entirely apple and well i guess apple apple does endorse it but the way to do it is to restore your ipod to the factory defaults and don't restore from one of your backups so you're going to put new software on your ipod uh, or iPhone or iPad or whatever it is, and then re-enter all your settings, all your apps, all your music uh, from iTunes. So this doesn't mean you have to rebuy your apps or rebuy your music. iTunes has those copies. You can put them back out there. But uh, but it does mean reconfiguring everything from scratch. But it that does get rid of this previous recipients list. So I'm not sure... Ouch. That's, yeah, it's kind of kind of yeah. harsh, uh, kind of extreme. Just it is extreme. List. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
All right. Do we have time for one more mail question, John, here? I guess a mail? How about this? Uh, I guess, well, we might. I don't know. I li- I'd like the, uh, like the Richard. Pick one. All right. We're going to Richard. Richard writes, my son is heading off to college in a couple of months with his MacBook. We're worried about the security of his data. At home, his MacBook is connected to an external drive for Time Machine backup. Of course, at college, he should be using Time Machine backups as well. He'll have his MacBook with him most of the time, and he can secure it to a desk in the room, and it is, at least to some degree, password protected. But I'm concerned about the Time Machine backup itself. I haven't found any way to encrypt or secure an external volume, and I use it as a Time Machine backup. By the way, most of his files, except his huge iTunes directory, are being backed up to the cloud, but he still doesn't want someone walking off with his data. Any ideas? So, um, there, there are a couple of ideas on this, John, right? It, the, but the point is, time machine backups are not secure, and there's an Apple Knowledge Base article that essentially says this. There are a couple of different ways that you could secure a time machine backup, though. Uh, the one Apple recommends is, of course, our perennial favorite file vault which encrypts your entire user directory and then of course that encrypted directory is now saved encrypted on your time machine backup it's our favorite really no we hate it (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if i hate it i i personally don't use it but it it, well it does have especially some space requirements that i think are uh, uh, kind of restrictive and it 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 slows things down it scares the life out of me is what it does but yeah, the info that both you and I found is that if you do File Vault, uh, it will encrypt the backup as well. But I believe you have limited ability to uh, restore individual items. I think you may have to re- restore the entire home directory. Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, there's, there's. I saw that in some of the yeah. discussions I found. But uh, hey, it's free. Right. You know, it's built into the OS. So right. so so that's one. But but I think. Well, you and I both have a couple of others that I think may be, a, well, it's an alternative. Go ahead. Take one. Well, I'll toss, uh, I'll toss one out here. Uh, I have, and I actually tried to experiment with this and it, it, it didn't work out, sadly. But TrueCrypt, I've written about this before. TrueCrypt is a open source free program that runs on the Mac, runs on Windows, runs on Linux. And it will let you create one of two different things. You can either create what they call an encrypted container, which is a file that looks like a disk and it's encrypted. You need a password and hint to the everybody. When you pick a password to encrypt your volume, pick a good password. <laughs> Do not use the word password or we're going to come over there and smack you. And don't leave it blank. But anyways, they, they enforce this. So that's one thing. Now, I tried something. Yeah, some people had suggested this, but it didn't work out for me. TrueCrypt. Now, sadly, the one thing that is missing on TrueCrypt is it will not let you encrypt your system volume or the boot volume. It will, however, let you encrypt or create an encrypted uh, external drive, like a USB drive. Here's the bad news. So some people suggested this, and I actually tried it. I had an extra drive sitting around. So I formatted a drive as a TrueCrypt volume. Yeah, and then I tried to pick time, and then I tried to select it with Time Machine. Nope. The Mac saw it just fine once it was mounted using their utility. I think actually you don't even need their utility. I think Mac Fuse will it, it, ins- it install something called Mac Fuse, so you don't even uh, necessarily need to use their utility to mount it. Then I, I even tried to you know do that hack to, to say 
let time machines see unsupported network volumes yep. or unsupported volumes. Didn't see it either. To me, that would have been the ideal solution. Now, I'm wondering, Dave, yes. here's another one. I mean, uh, uh, well, Pete uses this. We should ask him. But I wonder if something like PGP full disk encryption. No, would, I don't. I don't think I don't, your backups you, are encrypted with that. No, what I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking is that if it lets you create an encrypted volume, uh, what I'm suggesting is that an encrypted volume would be one way to solve this problem. But I, I don't think Time Machine would see one of those either. Oh, you mean using the encrypted volume as your backup destination? Yes. Oh, that, maybe that might work. If, I mean, if you can, you can back up to anything that the Mac sees as a disk, right? So if you can get an external drive set up with PGP full disk encryption and then mount that drive, which requires you typing in a password. Once that drive's mounted, I would assume that Time Machine would be happy to back up to it and be none the wiser about how the data is being stored. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't work for TrueCrypt. But then I think uh, I think you have a suggestion, Dave, that I think is is well another way of doing this. Yeah, it, it, and I found a, a forum uh, discussion over at Mackinac where people were suggesting create a sparse bundle on your Mac that's secure, and you can do that in Disk Utility. And you can put a password on it and inside that sparse, but put that sparse bundle in your documents folder or whatever. And when you open it up, it's going to ask you for a password and then it mounts it as a disc. Sparse bundles are backed up more efficiently than just any old disc image. Uh, it's a little wacky, but it'll, it'll back it up just the same. And then inside that store, any data that you feel is sensitive uh, that, you know, may or may not serve your needs, but I thought it was a pretty good idea you know, the other thing you can do is I believe the time capsule allows you to uh, share your disks either with the time capsules password or with separate user accounts. And if you set up user accounts, then anyone else accessing the time capsule can't necessarily get to the data that's on the attached disks. Um Still, if somebody takes the disks, takes it and walks away with it, they can still find a way to get at that data. It's not actually encrypted out there. So that may or may not solve this problem either. But it is it is worth noting that you can use user accounts mm -hmm. on a time capsule in a, in a limited capacity. And and here's another one. And this actually relates to a true story. Yep. Uh, so, so we had this happen at the workplace a little while ago. We had someone who was kidnapping other people's stuffed animals. Okay that they kept at their desk and then sending them ransom notes. So it was all in good fun. It yeah, was, you sure. know, office hijinks, but we couldn't figure out who was doing this. Mm -hmm. So one of my colleagues did this. Now he's a chemist and you got to watch out for chemists because they're, they're kind of scary, but he came up with a way to catch the perpetrator. He got a special dust or, or substance, a special powder that was fluorescent. If you put a fluorescent light on it, it would glow, but it was not visible to the human eye. Okay. Unaided. And basically what we did is we, we or, or he did this. He, he told me the story is he started uh, putting this powder on all of the stuffed animals that had yet, not yet been apprehended. Ah, and yes. So as soon as the next one was captured, uh, basically followed the trail. So there, there was literally a dust trail that went to the desk of the person who was taking the animals and, and she was quite embarrassed. That's freaking awesome. I like that. <laughs> That's absolutely so, uh, fantastic. 
it was it was it was uh, yeah it was very clever now i i, I yeah I, I'll, I'll have to see if i can find the name of the substance but uh yeah, that'd be great. Did it? Or you know, get one of those. I mean, if you get an external hard drive, get one of those. Uh, you know, better than nothing. I, I think some of them have those security lockdowns, like the is it Kensington or whatever yeah. security slot. Yeah. You know, I mean, if someone's determined, you know, they're probably going to be making a racket. But, but that that would be another solution, I think. Yep. Good point. Good point. All right. Uh, we want to make sure all of you know how to contact all of us here. The easiest way to do it is email. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the address for you to use. Or you could try feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I think I think it's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Yes, it could be that as well. And so if you're a you premium could- subscriber, feel free to send in to premium at MacGeekGab.com. Uh, we've got a separate box for all of you that uh, that subscribe to the premium show. And we thank you. Absolutely. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna repeat premium at MacGeekab.com, Dave. What I will repeat Oh no, I'm not repeating it. But you can also call us and you can do is pick up the phone and you can call us at 206-666-Geek, which is four three three five. And you can dial that uh, well from anywhere you like. We we love hearing from you uh, wherever you are. You can also Skype to MacGeekGab and that will get through to us. We, we just explained the options in order of audio quality. So when you hear very poor audio quality here on the show, uh, it usually comes in through the Skype voicemail. That's not because Skype has poor audio quality, not by any stretch. In fact, it has excellent audio quality. My dear friend John Braun you, has been coming to you via Skype today. But what happens is the Skype forwards to our voicemail line so that we're sure to get the voicemail and Skype's gateway to phone lines is terrible. So Skype in this capacity gives you the worst audio quality of the phone, slightly better than that. And then if you record on your iPhone or your Mac and you email it to us at feedback at MacGeekGab.com, that's the pristine, crystal clear audio quality that you were hearing from uh, quite a few of the callers in this show. I think that's that. Uh, Michael Johnston at the iPhone. Uh, sorry, Michael Johnston at the We Have Communicators podcast converts this show to AAC for you. Cashfly, C A C H E F L Y dot com provides all the bandwidth, and the podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit from Barebones Software. Text Expander and Text Expander Touch from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and Gazelle.com with your 5% off if you use the Mac Geek code there, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. That's all we have for today. But we'll be back on, I think we're back on Monday if uh, if my calendar's right, John. So we'll oh, yeah, and we're using a, a Google Calendar. Yes, and it syncs amongst all of our devices and, in fact, amongst all of us here swimmingly. You right. you updated it while I, when I called you from the car yesterday. By the time I got to where I was going and I looked at my calendar, it already was updated on my iPhone. It just doesn't get any Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. All right, we'll see you, we'll see you Monday. Thanks, folks. like Lee's advice. Lee's advice was good. Just in case it's never been said, don't get caught.
Almeida.